All right. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith on Canada's second National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. This is an important day in our country, and I think it's getting more important and vital every single year as Canadians learn more about the experience of Indigenous people in Canada. We recognize the truth of what happened, and we move forward together to make things better. I think that's the reconciliation part which is equally important. And we've got some wonderful and inspiring guests on the show today, so please spend your morning here with me. We start right now with Alice Ross. Alice is the former chief counselor of the Heisla First Nation. He is the liberal MLA for Skeena, and he's a tremendous advocate for First Nations in B.C., and I'm always grateful when he appears on the show. Alice, thank you very much for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. How you doing? I'm doing great, and thank you for spending some time with us today here, Ellis, on this important day. It's the second national day for truth and reconciliation. What does that mean to you as an, an Indigenous leader in B.C.? Well, it takes me back to uh, when I first got into the, this uh, type of job back in uh, 2003, when I really found out for myself that actually Canada was doing a, a great job already at recognizing uh, Aboriginal rights and title and the issues Uh because I, I don't think the world, let alone Canadians, understand the amount of work that Canadians have been doing in that respect. So it brings me back to a long, long, long journey to get to this day. Yeah, and do you think that, I think this is an important day, and I, I think Canadians are responding to it in, in big numbers every year. Do you think that it's getting better, like for people know more about the history of the Indigenous experience in Canada, especially the residential schools, like people are learning more about what happened? Uh, yeah, they, they are starting to learn yeah. more, and, and there's more to learn, uh, just yeah. like me. I didn't know any of this stuff uh, existed before I started researching for myself. Uh, but unfortunately, Canada, we're, we're going backwards in terms of reconciliation, which is sad, because we had gained so much improvements from 2004 to 2017. Mm. And I, I because... If we fail at this, First Nations are going to fail, and B.C. is going to be weaker for it. And it's just a sad situation to see. Okay, I want to get into some details on that with you. Let me ask you that first, uh, though, about something you just touched on. And the residential, the history of residential schools in B.C. and Canada, Like, I think that's interesting as a, as a high-profile leader in the community here, that even, you know, even Indigenous people don't know the history of this stuff, right, in, in many cases? That's right. I actually put out a booklet there when I was a chief counselor. And I, not only did I describe residential schools, I described a number of different things that uh, happened to First Nations under the Indian Act, and including what the province of BC had done to First Nations. And I did it as a way not only to educate uh, the general population, but to educate Aboriginal people in my community. Mm. And back when I, when I put that pamphlet out, even my community members weren't interested. So it, it's, it's nice to see the turnaround where people are actually hungry for the knowledge in terms of what had happened over the last hundred years. Like if when people look at that booklet now, like what do you think would be some of the the major kind of important parts of that that people should know that maybe people don't know? Well, it's like giving me every other race that came to BC or Canada for that matter. There was a tremendous amount of racism yeah. and it wasn't hidden. And it was actually the racism was carried out in terms of the legislation, the policies and even the comments um, made by BC leaders, for example. I mean, the Premier of BC said uh, basically that Aboriginals before the white man came along were nothing more than beasts running wild in the fields. Now, that day, the age is long gone, long gone. But there's so many different things in terms of uh, the land, uh, in terms of schools, in terms of uh, the ability to get legal advice, which we, we weren't allowed to do, and basically being restricted to reserves where you had to get permission from the Indian agent, if you want to go pick berries off your small little reserve community. Speaking to Ellis Ross, former chief counselor of the Heisla First Nation. Okay, Ellis, let's talk a little bit about uh, the reconciliation part part of this now. And you touched on that. That So you thought, you know, Canada is taking some steps backwards here after making a lot of progress earlier. Can you expand on that? Well, Canada is one of the only countries in the world that actually recognizes rights and title in the Constitution of Canada. Uh, Section 35 of the Constitution. Problem is, uh, they just recognized it. And I, uh, when I hear that word recognize, that's what uh, takes me back to, yeah, it's great to recognize, but it's even more important to act on something, to do something substantial instead of just recognizing something. 
because uh, it's great to be uh, recognized in the Constitution of Canada, but never actually did anything since 1982 to improve the lives of Aboriginal people in Canada. It was actually hundreds of court cases that define Section 35 that actually right. slowly started to move the needle in terms of the standard of living for First Nations, like my community. Yeah. Be, be, because of the reconciliation in terms of resource development and partnering with the B.C. government from 2004 to 2017 actually turned my community from one of the poorest communities in B.C. to one of the wealthiest, to one of the most progressive. So that, that's what reconciliation to me, to me means. Yeah. Action, not just words and recognition. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that because I know this is your, you know, your key focus and your passion is around improving the quality of life for Indigenous communities and the standard of living, especially through, you know, sustainable and responsible resource development in, in the land that has been occupied for millennia by, by these communities. Like, what do you think should be the highest priority there and why do you think that's important? Because nothing else works. I mean, I, I got into a council that was actually living on uh, uh, revenues coming from Ottawa under the Indian Act. Yeah. But people don't understand that when you receive money from Ottawa under the Indian Act, Ottawa tells you exactly what to do. They tell you how to do it. They punish you if you do good. They punish you if you do bad. And there's no real way to actually improve the lives of your people, no way to be independent. I mean, the resource development has been the only basic initiative that not only made my council independent of the Indian Act, but it made individuals independent. They didn't need council money. They didn't need Ottawa money. They didn't need, uh, didn't need welfare. Yeah. People got out of prison, stayed out of prison. And it's just so remarkable to see people living out their lives in the 21st century without the rhetoric of being an Aboriginal or reconciliation. I mean, most of the people I talk to, whether native or non-native, out in the streets of Kitimat Terrace who are living their lives and yeah. being successful, don't even mention reconciliation. And that's, I think that's the stage where we got to get to. Everybody right. has right. to be able to benefit from the, the, the resource development that should be happening in B.C. Right. And, you know, it gets down to having a, a good paying job, right? Like with everything that comes along with that, not only like income to support your family, but just basic pride of being a contributing member of society and working hard, making a, making a good living and being a, being a, a provider and a, an example for your kids and everything that flows with that. Would you, would you say? Uh, you, you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> That's exactly what's happening in Kitimat and Terrace. Yeah. I mean, for those leaders that are brave enough to stand up and talk about this in terms of the single moms that actually, you know, bought a van or they bought a house or the, the, the person that got out of prison, wanted to stay out of prison after spending 30 years in prison, got a good job, stayed out, and now totally proud of being able to look after his mom or his brother. And not one of these people have come up with the idea of saying, hey, we have to reconcile. I mean, reconciliation is a word that's been misused and twisted around because of politics. That I don't think anybody understands where the word came from and what it's supposed to really mean for people on the ground. And that's and, a shame. And, well, how would you define it? I would define it basically as two societies coming back together. That's, what I, that's how I define it. That's how the judge defined it. I mean, not, people, not many people know the word first came about in case law, in the trying to define Aboriginal and title. And the judge said, hey, we better get these two societies back together because, let's face it, nobody's going anywhere. Yeah. And I, and I always thought about that because First Nations and non-First Nation communities are intertwined. There's no doubt about it. Sure. I mean, First Nations enjoy hospitals, schools, money, computers, cell phones, just like everybody else. Yeah. But there's one aspect that's missing, and that's the attachment to the land. That's the culture. That's the custom that was not incorporated into the fabric of BC. And I think that's really the only thing that's missing, apart from resource development. I mean, if you want to address uh, poverty in First Nations and all those issues, yeah. then you've got to keep an open mind to resource development like mining, forestry, the export of LNG. You've got to keep an open mind to that because that's the only way out for First Nations. Ellis, it's always a pleasure to have you here, especially on Truth and Reconciliation Day. Thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. All right. Not a problem, Mike.
I really appreciate the time from our Truth and Reconciliation guests in the first half hour of the show, Ellis Ross and Chris Sankey. Their Truth and Reconciliation Day is about honoring the resilience, dignity, and strength of residential school survivors, their families, and their communities. And it's a day to take action and support Indigenous organizations that focus on healing intergenerational trauma. And a great way to do that is to support the Orange Shirt Society. And I encourage you to check out their website, orangeshirtday.org. All right, let's uh, take a look at what's happening now in the race to become the next mayor of Vancouver. We are entering the home stretch of the municipal election campaign. Take a look at some of the opinion polls here. Well, yeah, we got Kennedy Stewart running for re-election. He was in a very, very close battle last time with Ken Sim. And Ken Sim is running again. We got a rematch happening here. It seems to be a very close race. Let's check in now with Ken Sim and his ABC party. They released their full election platform yesterday. Ken, thank you for coming on. Hey, Mike. Uh, thanks for having us. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for doing it. Let's talk about the uh, platform you released yesterday and some of the components in it. And I think one of the big ones is on housing and affordability and, and getting more homes built in the city of Vancouver. That has certainly been a focus here on this show in the past as well. Tell me about some of the measures you've, you're uh, planning or promising here. Yeah, so uh, stepping back uh, to sort of lay the foundation of why we're doing this is uh, we're going through an affordability and attainability crisis that everyone knows about. And there are a lot of political parties that are making promises um, on the amount of housing. But if we do not fix the permitting process, this is all uh, a waste of time. And so what we've committed to is speeding up the permitting process. Um, we call it our 3331 plan where we can get, uh, you know, we're endeavoring to get uh, uh, a renovation permit to people within three days. Um, if you're going to build a single family home or a laneway house or something similar within three weeks, uh, low rise uh, um, buildings within three months and more substantive builds within one year down from the six to 12 years that it currently takes. And if we do this, we will be able to bring a lot more housing to the market faster. And uh, we should be able to reduce the cost of building um, uh, roughly 25 to 54% of the cost of every single new uh, built uh, home or townhome or condo is due to City of Vancouver permitting fees and delays. So this is uh, a winner on multiple fronts. Did you say it takes 12 years to approve some of these big projects? Yeah, some of them take uh, six to twelve years. It's it's crazy. To give you some perspective, um, yeah. world wars have been fought in less time. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, another uh, example is uh, you know a more recent example that's relevant to Vancouver. Uh, during the Olympics, I think it was seven years between the time we were um, awarded the Olympics and the day we hosted the Olympics. And in that time, think of all the infrastructure that was built and everything that was put together. And uh, and then we held the Olympics as well. And now in the city of Vancouver, you can wait six to 12 years just to get a building permit. Let's talk about the waiting time and some of the red tape and delays that people experience in, in building smaller residential projects. And you've already touched briefly on some of these. So how about like uh, like just even building a single family home or a townhouse? How long does it take to get approvals for those projects and, and how yeah, would you fix it? The pro- yeah, depending on the project, it could take eight months to two years, or, um, sometimes longer. Um, what we want to do is we want to uh, look at the problem uh, differently. We're not looking at incremental change. We're looking at fundamental change. And so the example I like to give you or give people is uh, the building of laneway houses. Now, if you already have a standard um, build that's been built hundreds of times, if not thousands of times in our city, so we already know the plans work. And there's a place, um, you know, you want to build it in a place that's already approved for laneway houses. Why do you have to wait eight months to two years to get that permit? You should be able to click on the website of the city of Vancouver. And if you, um, you know, meet the qualifications of, you know, uh, an approved build and in the right location, you should be able to get that permit immediately. We will still inspect um, once you start building yeah. to make sure everything's done properly. But we've literally shaved eight months to two years off that process. 
Okay, and could that, well, obviously you could get stuff built quicker that way. Would it actually result in cheaper housing? Well, if you look at the cost, uh, you know, if you reduce the cost to build, um, absolutely, yeah. um, you know, let's put it this way. If you increase the time, it will increase the cost to build, which will increase the cost of the overall um, um, place, whether, whether you're building it for yourself or a builder's building it for you and then uh, reselling it to you. Speaking to Ken Sim, running for mayor of Vancouver, let me play a clip here for you from your opponent, Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart. Here he is recently announcing that SkyTrain Loop, so an expansion of the SkyTrain system in, in Vancouver, and then get your thoughts. Here's Kennedy Stewart. We need to be ambitious. We need to be aggressive. I want to get the UBCX uh, extension built by 2030, and then we would think this would be kind of 2040, 2045 before that would be all completed. Okay, 2045, long way out, ambitious plan. What do you think about it? When I when I hear Demir um, uh, talk about the uh, plan, it's basically a reannouncement of something that's already happened. Uh, TransLink uh, has their TransLink 2050 plan, and so he's just put a, a nice little uh, video together and uh, reannounced it. And it's also a reaffirmation of the Vancouver plan, which all three ABC Vancouver councillors have already uh, approved uh, or voted for anyway. So there's nothing new here. Yeah, and I spoke to Alvin Singh the other day on the show, one of the candidates on the mayor's re-election slate, and I asked him about how much would the project cost. Is there any commitment from other levels of government to support it? I mean, you'd need the feds on board for a project of this scale. You'd need the province on board. And there doesn't appear to be a price tag or any commitment from other levels of government here to build this. I mean, maybe they'll will be in the future. He said they'll advocate for it. What do you think of that? Well, you know, as mayor of Vancouver, um, with an ABC majority on council, the first thing we would do is we would um, speak with our regional partners because we can't look at transportation um, you know, uh, with Vancouver uh, isolated. We have to think of our regional partners as well because, you know, people in Vancouver actually travel to other parts of the region and vice versa. And so the first thing we would do is we would talk to uh, the mayors of all the different regions, um, you know, Burnaby, North Van, Richmond, Delta, what have you. And we would work with the provincial government and the federal government and TransLink and uh, put a plan together just to make an announcement uh, two weeks before the election, um, it, you know, it, it's yeah. it, it's a little uh, light. Let me ask you about uh, another point of controversy in this campaign, and that has been uh, your campaign's accusations against Kennedy Stewart about plans for uh, a road tax or some sort of mobility pricing in Vancouver. And... I'll also play your reaction here from the mayor's candidate, Alvin Singh. But first of all, just to remind the listeners, here's a, a listen to a bit of one of the ads that your party has been playing here on the station. Let's listen to it. He's bringing in a new tax just for driving into downtown? Who? Kennedy Stewart. He calls it road pricing, and it starts right after he gets reelected. Are you sure? The city already spent $1 million and hired consultants to get ready. So every time I go to work, or even Vancouver General, you get taxed. Okay, so Kennedy Stewart's campaign fiercely denying this, angry about these ads, Ken, as you know. Here is Alvin Singh, who is running with the mayor on his slate. Here's what he told me on an earlier show, and then I'll get your thoughts. There is no plan to bring in anything like this. And what's more, Vancouver doesn't even have the authority to do such a thing. And then even if we did, the province wouldn't let us. And Ken Sim knows all of this. His party knows all of this. He knows there's no truth to this campaign. But he seems to have no problems misleading voters. Okay, Ken Sim, what do you say to him? Uh, well, first of all, uh, with all due respect, uh, uh, Mr. Singh is actually a communications expert. So he, he's what we would call a spin doctor. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, so let's just look at the facts. Um, so Mr. Singh says there's no plan. Well, uh, when we look at it, um, the city of Vancouver spent $1.5 million studying this pl- uh, the road tax. Um, they hired three consulting firms. They've had dozens of consultations. There were two reports to council, one back in November of 2021, one in May of 2022. Um, so there is a plan. Uh, with respect to Mr. Singh's comments about uh, not having authority, technically he is correct, but uh, um, former city manager Sadhu Johnson 
um, has that he um, he came out and he said there are ways of bypassing the provincial jurisdiction and making it a reality. Uh, the third thing I would say is look. At the end of the day, we believe that uh, it will happen first. Um, Mr. Stewart mentioned that it, it wasn't a thing, and then he mentioned yeah. that uh, he's not going to do it. When, I, when, when you see at the city of Vancouver, there is actually a road pricing analyst that gets paid more than $100,000 a year still on staff. When that position is no longer a position at the city of Vancouver, I will then maybe believe that this is not a thing, but they literally have a road, a senior road pricing analyst at the city of Vancouver as of right now. So why do they have that if there's no road tax? So, so, so what would you do if you were mayor, you had a majority on council, you would, you would fire that consultant, I guess? No, we would stop the road tax. Yeah. We would 100% stop the road tax. And look, um, as the city of Vancouver, um, you know, we, uh, you know, when I'm mayor of Vancouver with an ABC majority, make no mistake about it, we will be taking care of our people. Um, and that individual, um, we will make sure that that individual has uh, opportunities to, um, you know, apply for any other position at the city of Vancouver because we take care of our people. That's something okay. that we do. All right. Welcome back to the show. My guest is Ken Sim running for ABC Vancouver for mayor versus Kennedy Stewart. Lots of calls here. Let me ask you real quickly first, Ken, uh, about another element of the platform you released. Hiring 100 new police officers, 100 mental health nurses in the city. I think that'd be a popular measure for a lot of people, but how much would it cost? Where would you get the money for that? Yeah, so we... uh we priced uh, the size of the investment at $20 million. And um, to give you some perspective, um, that represents less than 1% of the overall budget of um, the city of Vancouver when you include uh, the capital part of the budget. And so we do know that there will be, um, once we have line of sight on the line items of the budget, we will be able to find quite a bit of um you know, uh, savings in that budget that, that have nothing to do with the delivery of services. So that's part of um, that's part of the funding. But the other thing is uh, looking at this differently. We truly believe that we're going to prove out a, a, a case where this is self-funding because for every dollar we invest uh, in the hundred nurses and the hundred uh, police officers, we should be able to save a multiple of that in terms okay. of avoided downstream costs. Let's go to the phone lines. James on the line in White Rock. Hi, James. Go ahead. Hi, Ken. I just wanted to ask you, I'm a tradesman, and I can voice for a lot of tradesmen in the lower mainland. We avoid Vancouver like the plague when it comes to building because it takes too much time. There's too much cost for us involved even going down there. And where do you plan on finding all the tradespeople to build all this housing that you think you're going to get in the next 10 years. Ken Sim. Great, James. That's a, that's a great question. You, you highlight the point. It is such a nightmare to do things at the city of Vancouver when it comes to, you know, permitting um, and um, building. When we make it easier, we will give um, builders, uh, you know, um, a, a better sort of environment to build. And um, we leave it up to the builders to decide whether or not they want to build in Vancouver. But I can tell you right now, uh, to James's point, they don't even want to come here. And that adds to the cost of housing. When you can't find trades that want to come in and you have to, you know, pay more or look further to get people to um, work on your projects, um, it just ends up costing the projects more, which ends up costing people more. Let's go to, back to the phone lines. Michelle in Vancouver. Hi, Michelle. Go ahead. Hi there, and hi, Ken. Um, uh, it's nice to have a, a good um, choice in this election. Um, my question was re- with regards to the SLO officers in the Vancouver School Board. Uh, a small group of people were able to take them out. How are you going to increase engagement with the public and, uh, and replace those officers? Thank you. Great. Thank you. That's a great that's a great question. So as mayor of Vancouver with an ABC majority on school board, uh, we will be bringing the SLO uh, or the school liaison officer program back. 
and we will be looking to continuously improve it. Um, you know, we've had um, not just myself, but uh, all of our candidates, we've been knocking on doors across the city. And one of the big things that we heard uh, from concerned parents and students is um, they wanted the SLO program back. So we're, we are going to bring it back. And we've also heard uh, from, you know, some communities that um, had some challenges with it. And, you know, we've had conversations with VPD and uh, they're on board in terms of, you know, continuously improving the program to make sure that, you know, um, you know, a small segment of uh, the racialized community, um, they are heard and their concerns are addressed. And so, um, you know, this is this is a, a great program that can get better and can be more empathetic. Ken Sim, thank you for your time today and agreeing to take the calls. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you very much for the opportunity. All right. Let's keep talking about that housing plan that David Eby rolled out this week. And I think it's important to pay close attention to this. This guy likely to be the next premier. And this is a very ambitious and detailed plan that he laid out here. And there's already a backlash against some parts of it here. Now, we talked earlier about the anti-flipping tax that is in this plan. How would that work? Well, if you buy a property and then resell it within two years, you would be subject to this anti-flipping tax with some exceptions. Here is David Eby uh, on the show yesterday on this flipping tax here. Have a listen to this. And when they're putting a bid in on a place, they find themselves competing with short-term investors who are buying properties and flipping them shortly thereafter to make money from uh, a short-term investment. They're not looking for a place to live. And so this tax looks to take the profit out of that activity. Yeah, okay. So they take the profit out of it by whacking you with a tax for these property speculators. Let's discuss this with Peter Millibar now. Get the opposition take on it. Liberal MLA, Kamloops North Thompson. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Peter. Good afternoon, or morning, I guess. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you for coming on. So let's start with that anti-flipping tax. What do you think of that idea? Well, well, first off, I mean, you started saying with a lot of detail in this plan, and in fact, there's not a lot of detail in the plan, and, and the flipping tax is a good example. I, I heard Mr. Eby on your show yesterday. Uh, frankly, he was tapped answering around the question when you uh, put it to him because he couldn't answer who would be eligible or not. And as soon as you have a, a clause that has all sorts of exemptions in it, um, you know, you could drive a truck through all of the exemptions, and rightfully so. People need to have the ability uh, for life changes happening to them to not be penalized by David Eby uh, because something like a job change or, or uh, family family situation changes. So lack of uh. detail there. And, and I mean, frankly... Uh, he started off years ago uh, trying to blame people with Asian descent names. He switched from that to trying to blame casinos. He switched from that when the Colin report came out and said that wasn't uh, driving up real estate in a meaningful way. Uh, and now he's going on to flipping as the as the root cause. Uh, there's no doubt there are people that are flipping. Uh, the vast yeah. majority of people, though, are, are likely selling for all those exemptions he's going to bring in. So it's a bit of a red herring, I think, with the overall plan that he announced. Well, he did detail some exemptions in the announcement. So some of the exemptions include job loss that you just mentioned. So if you lose your job and you're forced to sell your home as a result, you would qualify for an exemption that you wouldn't have to pay this tax. Divorce, okay, so your marriage breaks up, okay. You know, that would be what? Disability, you become disabled, you have to move. Uh, a death, you know, someone dies, you get a death in the family, uh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you'd qualify for an exemption. But one of the points, like I, I can think of a long list of other reasons that people might have to legitimately move within two years of buying a property that's not on that list. Like, I don't know, like I said to him, what if you don't like your neighbors? Okay. Like what if you just decide that the commute to your job is just driving you crazy and you want to move closer to your job? I mean, how do you, you could, you could have a bureaucratic nightmare trying to list all these exemptions. What are your thoughts? Well, well, you could have, and, and uh, this plan is predicated on on uh, the the basis that the NDP views people as tax cheats, and so um, you know they they've done this with uh, we have the used cars tax coming in tomorrow, same thing, um, but that seems to be their premise. I, I prefer to view that the vast majority of people follow the laws, uh, follow tax law, uh, aren't trying to uh, scam the system, aren't uh, trying to flip homes are legitimately uh, buying and selling, trying to figure out what neighborhoods work for them or not. As you mentioned yesterday, commutes 
you yeah. you think you've moved somewhere or, or train noise or all sorts of things uh, that necessitate you needing to move because you realize it's just not tenable. It could be something as simple as, and, and Lord knows this happens all the time, you just don't get along with your neighbors and it's, yeah. it's become an unbearable situation. Um, you know, that results in a quick sale. And so, you know, I, I think Ms. Treby is, is again, grasping at straws. I, I've said it right from the beginning. He's been the, the housing minister. He's for a couple of years. He was the attorney general for almost six years now. He was able to browbeat and strong arm every cabinet minister and caucus member to not run for leadership against him. Yet he couldn't even advance something like uh, basement suites being legal across the province in that time frame. Okay. Um, you know, it makes you wonder uh, why none of those those other things were done uh, until now. Okay. Speaking of basement suites being legal everywhere, his also another one of the density measures that he announced would be the ability to turn a single-family home into a, a triplex. Uh, this would be potentially province-wide. And I asked him about that infrastructure question, like, hang on a sec, where is where's everyone going to park? Are you going to have enough local services, sewer, water, garbage collection? What about this municipal infrastructure if you're suddenly going to start densifying? Here's what he told me, and I'll get your thoughts. We need to provide the transit, we need to provide the roads, we need to provide the schools and hospitals to respond to a growing population and support yeah. fast-growing communities without question, Mike. Um, but, you know, we're also seeing people living in their cars that have decent jobs. We see people who are unable to, uh, to find a place to live. And, uh, and we need to respond to this housing crisis proportionally. Your thoughts? Well, I can tell you, as a, as a former councillor and a former mayor, um, I, I have the immediate concerns you listed off as well. Um, it's one thing to work with municipalities to incentivize and, and get growth into areas that they have all of those services in place for growth. It's another thing to say um, that uh, every lot in their city, whether it's already serviced by transit or not in that area, whether it has sewer capacity or water capacity or not, uh, has the right uh, to make it into a threeplex. Um, that's not responsible development for any community to do. So, I, I, again, I, I think this has not been uh, extremely well thought out. It very much feels like it was rushed out because he was feeling the pressure and the heat for sleepwalking through a leadership race and, and anticipating that he was going to be coronation. And, and now it's looking like it will be an actual race. And uh, he's suddenly having to scramble and, and appear to be doing something. But there's there's very little net new housing in this plan, uh, turning stratas into to rentals is very little net new. Um, the basement suites, very little net new. Most places have turned a blind eye to them. People that want them in their houses already have them. Very little supply will be added to uh, to the system with that. Um, you know, he um, he's had a lot of years. They've dumped a lot of money and a lot of taxation against housing. It hasn't worked for the first six years of their 10-year housing plan. This plan is based on a lot of taxation and a lot more uh, government money going into a system uh, that simply hasn't worked for six years, and we expect a different result now. I just don't see it. Speaking of Liberal MLA Peter Millibar, we're talking about David Eby's housing plan. Uh, probably he'll be the next leader of the NDP. I think the woman who's running against him, Anjalia Potterai, Peter, I, th- I think the party brass is going to find a way to stop her. You know, if there's any if there's any chance that she could actually defeat Eb, I think the party will stop it. You know, they'll disqualify her. I think that's what's yeah, going on I, there. Well, if recent uh, history is anything, uh, any evidence of that, I mean, uh, Nathan Cullen, uh, by rights, uh, should not have been able to seek the nomination in, in his writing, but they made sure the. Uh, an indigenous woman uh, was not allowed to run. Uh, here we have a, a you know a young articulate uh, woman of color trying, and and it very much looks like the old boys network in the NDP is is worried yeah. about that. And and leadership races are supposed to be about exchanging ideas of where a party wants to go. I seem to recall at the NDP uh, convention that there was a lot of discussion on their floor about uh, where they were headed environmentally and all of those things. And now they don't want to talk about it because they have an environmental-minded uh, uh, leadership candidate. It seems right. very strange and very closed off uh, and not very democratic, as their name might suggest. Yeah, I mean, like you said, is old boys network kind of stopping a candidate from running. Basically, just like you guys stopped Aaron Gunn from running for the liberal leadership, right? 
Same thing. Well, no, not quite the same thing. Uh, sure, off, sure it was. Well, first off, the the membership uh, cutoff hadn't come and gone uh, when they started to to uh, get nervous about what happened. Uh, we didn't threaten to throw out a, a whack of Mr. Gunn's memberships if he had sold memberships. Uh, there was four or five other people in the race at the time. This was not uh, uh, a way to, to ensure that one, any one person had a guaranteed path to victory. Uh, so it's a, it's okay. a quite different situation than what the NDP are facing uh, right now. When, when you have a two-person race and they're trying to kick one out, they're essentially trying to <laughs> say uh, who they want to be the leader, not when there's already five or six other people in the race. Okay, let me ask you, okay, you, you touched briefly on the fact that, getting back to EB's housing plan here, you mentioned that this is a guy who was housing minister for a couple of years why didn't he get this stuff done when he was in charge? Now, I put that to him on the show yesterday. Here's what he said, and then I'll get your thoughts. COVID, and there was chaos uh, in uh, downtown Victoria with uh, just hundreds of people living in parks and on the streets. Uh, we had the Strathcona Park encampment. And uh, getting those people inside and dealing with COVID and, and supporting people in uh, social housing around uh, everything related to the pandemic was, uh, was critical. Okay, so basically his point there was that the pandemic was on. He's dealing with a, with the crisis issues on his, his file as minister. So that's why he didn't get this stuff done. I mean, he was busy working on other stuff. Well, well, first off, I think people are growing tired of, of the COVID uh, reasoning for everything. There was people living on the streets in Strathcona pre-COVID. Um, there was uh, chaos on the streets ever growing, and he was the attorney general watching that grow uh, all that time. Um, you know, the, uh, the bureaucracy can walk and chew gum at the same time. A lot of what he's talking about uh, uh, in his housing plan now has nothing to do with homeless. It has nothing to do um, with COVID. It has to do with regulations. If he truly wants to enable and change so that you can have three three housing units on one, what does that have to do with COVID? What does removing strata rentals have to do with COVID? What does, I mean, uh, basement suites, what is uh, unilaterally making every house uh, lawfully able to have a basement suite? What does any of that have to do with COVID? Again, it's David Eby trying to point a finger somewhere else to blame uh, something else because well, of his lack of action on housing. We've seen the, the facts bear out. We have we have the highest rents ever under his watch. We have the highest housing prices ever under his watch. Uh, lots uh, of other jurisdictions have dealt with COVID and didn't see these things skyrocket at the same time. Right. Continuing my discussion now with Peter Millibar as we continue talking about David Eby's housing plan rolled out. He was my guest on the show yesterday. Let's go to your phone calls here. Shelly in South Surrey. Hi, Shelly. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. Um, Hi. I, I just I'm fascinated by this discussion. Um, the, the B.C. Liberals really seeded the problems that we have today. They ignored money laundering for years that they were in power. They ignored the uh, the money laundering through the casinos. They were sat by while satellite families were parasiting our services, not paying taxes, not contributing. Um, they, they've done nothing about anything. I don't ever hear that they have a cohesive plan. And to sit here and hear them complain, I mean, there's lots of things... As far as I'm concerned, the NDP haven't done enough either. The Cullen Commission was a bit of a sham. They didn't really get to the bottom of things. Um, we don't have parties in this province and really in this country that are interested in addressing the corruption and everything that has bred the nightmare that the people in the downtown east side are living that all of us are living our children are living because they can't afford it there's lots of greed there's plenty of greed there's no solutions okay shelly thank you for the call peter what do you say to her well, I think part of the disappointment people have in the Cullen Commission that you're hearing from are people that bought in uh, for years of, of David Eby uh, using a narrative that was, uh, frankly, uh, borne out to not be accurate with the Cullen report. And so that's part of the problem, and, that, and that's the worry that we have right now. Um, look, we weren't perfect on housing, but we certainly didn't have uh, rental prices like we have now. They're up $500 a month under David Eby's watch in Vancouver. They're up about $400 a month in the rest of the province. We didn't have sky-high uh, housing prices like we have uh, out of sync with the rest of Canada. You look where you can buy in Edmonton for $500,000 compared to uh, yeah. uh, Vancouver or anywhere else. 
Um, yeah, but you know, but it, she it, but she was not but she's not talking about EB's record. She was talking about your record when the Liberals were in power, right? And about the failure to crack down on money laundering in casinos when it was running wild, and when the housing market got distorted completely out of whack and there was there was a very very little or slow response from the liberal government like when you look back at that situation now like like on money laundering for example would you acknowledge or admit that you know that was a failure of the past government well i would say when you read through the report what was very clear is that the number one takeaway from the Cullen report is that advice was given around uh, policing units uh, that needed to be funded uh, other priorities in government were made. Uh, the government has had that for almost a year now. They haven't beefed up the funding to those units yet either uh, because they've spent money and prioritized it in other ways, despite collecting an extra $12 billion in taxation this year. And so there's only so many resources to go around. Governments have to make those decisions all the time, and it was not seen uh, to be as significant. Uh, and the Colin report, uh, especially as it relates to real estate, uh, bore that out, that it was not a what significant would... factor in the real estate market. Okay, we just have one minute left. You've basically kind of slammed everything that EB announced. What would you guys do? Like, how would you guys approach this file? Well, uh, Kevin Falcon's been very clear from the beginning that uh, you need to work uh, better with municipalities. We need to be incentivizing and, and, and uh, working with the ones that, that uh, are showing the best practice. You don't come in with a Bigfoot sledgehammer like, like Mr. Eby is suggesting with the, the three on every lot and, and things of that nature. You need to work with them to make sure it's going into areas that they have identified uh, within their OCPs require the growth. You figure out how it's going to get paid for because there is a significant uh, servicing cost to those areas to increase the densification in those areas. Um, and and it's it's those types of things. But the reality is we believe in results. And, and by every measure, uh, the NDP and David Eby have failed over the last six years on housing. They've delivered 7% okay. of what they promised of a 10-year plan in six years. I don't know how anyone could consider that even remotely successful when it comes to housing. Peter, thank you for coming on today. Great. Thank you. Anytime, Mike. All right. Let's keep talking about David Eby's housing plan here, poised to become the next premier of British Columbia. And that's why I think we should pay close attention to the plan here that he laid out this week on housing. There's a lot in here. I mean, there's a lot of missing pieces too, but there is a lot of structure here that he announced this week as well. You got that anti-flipping tax on properties resold within two years, secondary suites, legal everywhere, uh, the government getting into the housing business, buying up apartment buildings if they come on the market potentially. All single-family homes could be redeveloped as triplexes, all in this plan. Now, here's another one that's getting a lot of attention. Let's drill down on this now when it comes to stratas and condos. Now check this out in this plan. EB says he would bring in a ban on strata rules that prevent owners from renting out their units. So this is the case in some stratas right now. You can't rent out. Your condo, EB says he would make that basically illegal. All condos would be available to rent out if the owner wants to rent them out. Now, why would he do that? Well, he says, we need we need rental properties. We need rental homes. Here's what EB had to say to me yesterday. He said a lot of these condos are sitting empty. They should be rented out. Here's what he said. We right. know from the speculation tax that there are thousands of units uh, in the province that are vacant. Uh, in uh, communities where the rental vacancy rate is about 0%. I mean, there's, there are people searching for housing. They can't find a place to rent. There's someone who wants to rent this vacant unit. Okay, that was David Eby on the show yesterday. Let's discuss this part of the plan now with my guest, Tony Giaventu. Tony is executive director of the Condo Homeowners Association of BC. And it's always great to have him on. Tony, thanks for coming on today. Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. Kind of an interesting oh. topic, isn't it? Yeah, it really is, and it, I'm sure that, uh, boy, your phone was ringing off the hook here when EB announced this. So tell me your thoughts on this now, how he would bring in this ban on uh, no rental rules in stratas. Well, you know, the claim that there are thousands of units um, with the exemption because of no rentals actually is 2,600 exemptions that were granted, and nobody ever bothered to follow up or verify whether they were credible or not. Notwithstanding any of that, 
Compare that to the fact that we have about a million strata units in the province, um, and 75% of the 34,000 strata corporations are 50 units or less. And this is really going to impact those communities more than anybody because the 50 units or less are the ones where we have self-management. Very few of them are managed. So most of those communities, you know, for the last 60 years have really had the intentional privilege of saying, look, we want to limit the number of rentals or prohibit rentals because we're self-managed and because we have basically just the resource of our volunteers to manage our properties. So it's a pretty large constituency of smaller properties that are going to be affected by this. The the challenge we have with condos is not that they're... um, that they aren't feasible for rental units. But the real challenge is that they're not affordable. By the time you take strata fees and insurance, and if you have a mortgage on top of it and any special levies or anything else, the the owner of the unit is putting out at least $1,000 a month. Um, so there is no way um, it's going to be affordable housing. It's still going to be, as you look in the markets across the province, one-bedroom condos for $2,500 a month. You know, families are struggling to try and find affordable housing. Condo rentals are not affordable housing. Okay. What percentage, if you take a look across the spectrum of uh, stratas and condo units in British Columbia, what percentage of the units are are not available for rental, are, are subject to a, a rental ban? You can't rent your condo out. To be perfectly honest, no one knows what that number is because it's it's strata by strata. But since yeah. 2010, um, strata corporations had the privilege of a rental disclosure exemption filed by developers. And almost all of them were created that way, where the developer essentially exempted the strata corporations and the units from rental bylaws for 99 years. So since 2010, we've constructed about 300,000 units. Uh, those are all exempt. Um, pretty much across the board. And when we look at, uh, you know, our membership across the province and their bylaws, very few of them actually prohibit rentals. Most of them allow for a certain percentage of rentals to be manageable, to be fair, but still for the strata corporation to take control of, to be able to control this as volunteers. You know, BC right. is quite is quite different than the rest of the provinces. We strata title everything from two units up. Um, the other provinces in their legislation don't strata title duplexes and fourplexes and 10-unit townhouse systems. Um, one of the things that has really protected strata corporations, especially these smaller strata corporations, which we find across the province, point, whether it's Point Grey or Fort St. John or Prince George or Victoria, makes no difference. Um, what we have are a lot of 10 to 15 to 20-unit townhouse or small apartment complexes that are fairly low density rental bylaws are not rentals rentals in those stratas with bylaws are not attractive to speculators developers or investors because while they're holding the units they can't rent them out we remove rental bylaws and it's going to be open season for speculators yeah that that occurred to me yesterday i talked to the minutes to david eby about that as well like you know could that potentially drive up the the price of condos uh i think it may um we yeah. you know we still have this we have this unusual because we have so many condos in the province we have this unusual circumstance where um we have wind-ups that are happening and they are you know anywhere from four units to 12 to 50 to 100 units where the strata corporation gets an offer they can't refuse they vote by 80 percent to do a wind-up it's an interesting thing about the market values because when one of those windups closes and, you know, we have one closing in the near future here, just around a hundred units, when it closes, almost every one of the owners is going to end up with about a million dollars in their pocket. And we instantly put those people on the market competing for stock in the same neighborhoods or regions. Mm. Um, it, you know, it, it does have um, a real upward effect on the price because of the competition where we don't see the same chilling effect on real estate prices. Speaking of Tony Giaventu, Condo Homeowners Association, I got a lot of calls yesterday from condo owners, people who are active in their their strata councils who are saying like, look, David Eby, please don't do this to us because some people want to live 
in a development that there are no rentals. They don't want, they maybe they moved out of a rental building and they don't want to move into a rental building anymore. That sometimes you get bad renters, you get bad tenants, and it's difficult it's difficult to get rid of them. It's difficult to evict them if they are, and it causes problems, especially for a small, under-resourced uh, strata. So let me play this clip here for you because I asked David Eby about that yesterday. You know, what if you have a situation where a condo development, the strata council is quite happy with having a no rental rule for some, maybe some good reasons. And and we talked about getting rid of bad tenants. Here's what he had to say to me on that. Then I'll get your thoughts. So this is EB yesterday. That people are worried, you know, you get a renter in there, creates a bunch of problems. And how do you get rid of them if there's an absentee owner and they destroy life in the condo and so on? So making sure that there are rules so that Strata can go to the residential tenancy branch and have that tenant removed and recover those costs from the absentee owner is an essential part of this as well to make sure that buildings are livable. Okay, what do you think of that? Like he's saying, okay, we want to open up all these condos to potential renters, and if there's a bad tenant, you know, we'll be there to help people deal with that. What do you think of that? Well, we need um, a significant change to both the Strata Property Act and the Residential Tenancy Act that guarantees a strata corporation has the rights to do this, because currently they don't have the rights to do this, and it is a problem. Tenants, um, you know, no criticism of tenants. There are um, thousands of units um, uh, in condos that are rented. Um, A lot of the tenants play an active role on the strata councils. There are great supportive people in the communities, the difficulty is you end up with a difficult tenant. It almost guarantees that you have a problematic landlord. And the landlords themselves are disinterested or disconnected. And the only real remedy strata corporations have right now is they have to go to Supreme Court at a very long process that's costly to be able to remove these people. In the process of eviction of these people, when there is a serious problem, there are also a lot of secondary damages that occur to buildings that are vindictive. And, you know, I, we're, we're not talking hundreds. We're, we're talking a small number. But the small number create havoc for the strata corporations that have to deal right. with this. There, there's no way of preventing or stopping this. But opening up, but, but, but I think the piece that's missing here is that, as one of your um, callers said in one of your emails was, that we've been given this right for 60 years we have bought into a community intentionally because there were no renters. Um, right. You know, look at the other side of this. Um, renters do bring um, a much higher rate of transiency. Higher rate of transiency has an impact on security, personal security in buildings, um, wear and tear on buildings with a higher rate of moves. Um, think about what those implications will be, and that and that's fine. One of okay. the um, one of the owners I talked to yesterday said, "I'd love to rent my unit out." But I can't rent it out for less than $2,500 to be able to make this work. But even then, my strata fees are going up 15% this year, but I can only increase the rent by 2%. What am I going to do about this? Tony, thank you for coming on with your thoughts today. It's an issue we're going to follow closely here going forward. Appreciate it. Super. Thanks a lot, Mike.